Right now, there are great deals to escape to Europe in spring and summer on direct flights to Ireland with Aer Lingus. Stay put in cool, contemporary capital Dublin or head off to any of 20 amazing European cities you've always wanted to visit. Classical chic Rome, Paris, the home of romance, or London, the cutting edge of culture. Deals are for a limited time only, so hurry and book today. Smart says escape to Europe this spring and summer. Smart flies Aer Lingus. Book now at aerlingus.com. Welcome to Creating a Family, talk about infertility and adoption. Today we're talking about living with PCOS. I think you're going to enjoy the show. A lot of people have expressed an interest in it. Here's a sample of what you're going to hear. When we're talking about the world of infertility and and treatments for patients with PCOS, as little as a 2 to 5% weight loss can uh, kind of recharge the system and redirect the hormone levels and cause women to start ovulating. So that can even be beneficial. So it's not huge amounts of weight necessarily, it's, but it's a, it's a lifestyle change, and it's a slow, steady progression for a long-term goal. I'm Dawn Davenport. I'm the director of Creating a Family. We are the National Infertility and Adoption Education and Support Nonprofit. And you can find us online at creatingafamily.org. We're a weekly radio show, and we use the podcast model. That way you can listen whenever and wherever you want. That way you can also subscribe. So whatever uh, app you are using to listen to this podcast, just click subscribe on that app, and you will get notice of each new episode, and you can decide whether you want to download it or not. The Creating a Family radio show is underwritten by our corporate sponsor, Faring Pharmaceutical. Faring is pleased to offer their IVF green light program that provides discounts of up to 50% on select IVF products. All cash-paying patients are eligible, and unlike other programs, there are no financial requirements. To get more information, you can go to their website, ivfgreenlight.com. This show, as well as all the resources provided by Creating a Family, could not happen without the generous support from our gold sponsors, who believe in our mission of providing unbiased education and support to those struggling to create a family. Some of our wonderful gold sponsors include Manhattan Cryobank. They are dedicated to helping clients have healthy babies by analyzing a client's DNA in combination with the DNA of the prospective sperm donor to provide the client with a personalized catalog of safer donor matches. We also have the law offices of James Fletcher Thompson. They are a South Carolina firm committed to assisted reproductive law and adoption. They also provide a gestational surrogacy matching program as well as legal services for independent surrogacy, egg donation, and embryo donation. We'll tell you about some of our other great gold sponsors later in the show. But I also want to remind you that in addition to our gold sponsors, we also have other great sponsors and uh, that allow us to bring you this show. We ask that when choosing an infertility service provider, please consider choosing one from the Creating a Family directories, which you can find on the service provider page of our site. You can search by location, services provided, just a lot of things that we think are important when choosing, and we think you will think so too. By using these directories, you support those who support us, and we thank you. Today, we're going to be talking about living with polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS, our guest today to, to illuminate all things PCOS is Dr. Alan Martinez. He is a reproductive endocrinologist at Reproductive Science Center of New Jersey. Welcome, Dr. Martinez, to Creating a Family. Thank you, Don, for having me. I appreciate it. So this is going to be a show. We got a lot of questions uh, from our audience, as, as, as you might imagine. PCOS is a, um, a very popular topic. Uh, a lot of people in our community um, suffer with this uh, uh, syndrome. Let's start at the at the beginning. Good place to always begin, right? Uh, let's start mm-hmm. talking about the common symptoms that a woman might have of polycystic ovary syndrome. Let me mention that it's also, I, I don't ever hear it referred to this, but perhaps in medical circles it still is being referred to as Stein-Leventhal syndrome. Um, but in case somebody has heard, it, has heard of Stein-Leventhal syndrome, that is the same thing as polycystic ovary syndrome. So what are some of the common symptoms that we see? So 
With with patients with uh, polycystic ovary syndrome, uh, they most commonly present with um, either irregular menstrual periods or amenorrhea, which is no menstrual periods altogether. Um, That's one of the main presenting uh, symptoms. And also they can have uh, signs of elevated male hormones in their body, um, are called androgens, hyper androgenism, which is clinical evidence of hyperandrogenism, which can be things such as adult acne. It can be uh, abnormal hair growth, so of a male pattern nature. So it could be on the chin, chest, abdomen, where women are having to pluck hairs and address those issues. And then the other thing is that it can also be responsible for um, such things as insulin resistance, and that's a component that we can talk about throughout the show um, that can predispose people to, you know, having higher instances of diabetes and uh, such as um, also cardiovascular uh, um, disease later on in life. Yeah, okay, we, and we are going to come back because one of the things we do, although we are really focused as a as an organization on infertility, infertility is just one of the one of the symptoms, uh, and Correct. it does have yeah. other significant health consequences. Okay, so we will talk about mm-hmm. that. We got a question from Megan. She asked, "Can you have PCOS and have regular periods? I have many of the other PCOS signs and symptoms, except for irregular periods." Yes, you you actually can, and uh, it's a common question that we get with our patients. Um, you know the. The most common ways that that PCOS is is diagnosed. There's a few different criteria that are that are used. There's one that came out of the uh, National Institutes of Health, the NICHD, back in 1990, and then there's another commonly used, the Rotterdam criteria. And I think that these are the two major criteria that are used. Uh, but the the answer is is that you can have regular periods. You just may not be always releasing an egg, so you may have an anovulatory cycle. And um, and so it's not necessary to have a period um, or to have irregular periods per se. But if you're having regular periods, aren't you likely ovulating? I mean, if if you were if you were truly anovulatory, if the periods were were totally anovulatory, if I'm saying that correctly, wouldn't you be more likely to be irregular and skip? I mean, is it uh, is it possible to be totally in every time not ovulating, but and be but be very regular? No, it, I, in, in most cases, I believe that it is more of an oligo, uh, an oligo ovulation, which means that it doesn't happen every time, but it's sporadic. And and so so many women come to our clinic for evaluation for infertility because they've been trying to conceive, and even though their periods may be within the the regular range, right around give or take a 28 days, you know, between their menstrual periods, they can still um, not ovulate all the time, and that can put them at risk for infertility. Okay. And we got a number of questions asking about what causes this uh, polycystic ovary syndrome. What, what do we know? What causes this? Well, unfortunately, we we don't know the exact cause of uh, of PCOS. Uh, we we know that PCOS, in and of itself, is a clinical manifestation of changes in the normal hormones that result in kind of the ovarian monthly cycle, and meaning that the brain talks to the ovaries, it sends signals, the ovary has to respond in a very predetermined way. And if that gets altered at all for for whatever particular reason, that's enough to create polycystic ovaries and the symptoms that go along with it. Uh, we do know that it has um, a genetic component. It does aggregate and uh, run in families. And um, it may also have an environmental cause as well, which we haven't elucidated, um, but that is a possibility. I wanted to talk to you some about the environmental causes. But before I get to that, what is, is PCOS more common now than in the past? It, that's, that's a very good question. And I, I believe that <clears throat> women health providers the um the general obstetrician gynecologist as well as the general public in the infertility world are more aware of, of polycystic ovary syndrome 
Now, with that being said, uh, we we know that there's a direct correlation with um, one of the phenotypes of PCOS is associated with obesity. So having an elevated body weight, that can change the dynamics of the hormones that I mentioned before, and it can actually predispose people to becoming anovulatory and developing PCOS. So I think that in general, uh, the population is becoming, you know, there's a larger proportion of people that are overweight, and I think that that's changed over the years, and that might predispose people to more likely to develop PCOS. But then that's kind of that chicken and egg thing. Is PC, does PCOS cause people to be overweight, or is PCOS caused by people being overweight? Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, and, and that's, that's a very good point. Uh, definitely PCOS has um, an association with obesity, but there's also a lean phenotype. So about 60 per, 35 to 60% of people will be obese um, and have PCOS, but there's also a lean phenotype. So we know that, that obesity in and of itself can create insulin resistance and change the way that our body deals with sugar loads. And that is part of the pathophysiology and the reason, um, one of the major causes of why people become anovulatory. They don't release an egg every month. They have irregular cycles and present with a PCOS phenotype. Okay. Then... um one of the okay, let's talk about other environmental factors. The the prevalence of of our eating patterns, it sounds like, in, with some people, might make them uh, more likely to develop PCOS. If I if I understood you correctly, um, so so that is an environmental factor. Are there other environmental factors? And I'm thinking in terms of things like uh, chemical exposures, or you know, the just the the host of you know, we kind of swim in a lot of thing, a lot of chemicals that we didn't use to. I don't mean literally swimming; I mean living in um, <laughs> chemicals yes. that uh, that didn't used to be present. Um, has there been any research on the, the chemical exposures, toxins, and environmental toxins could uh, reflect in uh, an increase in PCOS? There are there has been some preliminary research um with with you know a couple of different environmental toxins um I know that some groups have looked at bisphenol A or or BPA which is the plasticizer remember they removed all the BPA from like uh infant right. bottles and things like that mm-hmm. and we know that there are environmental agents so BPA such as BPA that are estrogen like and in Increases in estrogen in the body, seeing more estrogen plays a role in changing the dynamics of how the ovary functions on a monthly cycle. And so these things can and may have a, may have a role in it. The research is preliminary, but there is some evidence definitely from estrogen-type components that it may, um, it may contribute to this in some way. And I will link to in the blog tomorrow, uh, we've done shows uh, on this topic a number of shows, including one, and I'm blanking on her name, and I shouldn't be, uh, one of the lead researchers out of Stanford who has been doing a lot of research. She presented at ASRM mm, two years ago. Anyway, I will, uh, I'll link to the, the, that uh, in, the, um, uh, in the blog tomorrow. All right, uh, here's a question from Cindy. She wants to know, why aren't doctors more knowledgeable? She said, I've had all the symptoms and but was never told that my illness had a name or that so many others had the same problem. Um, do you see this as an issue when people come to, to you that, that uh, as a reproductive endocrinologist that you're the first one who has identified and given a name to what they have? Or is that just Cindy's unique experience with her one doctor? No, I actually think that, that that's not unique. Uh, we, I have patients that present to the office, and, and they have a history of irregular cycles, you know, or just prolonged cycles. And, you know, when we get into their history, we find out that they have some of these symptoms, and they kind of, they, they kind of fit into that classic presentation of PCOS. And I think that a lot of the, OBG, the OB, general OBGYNs and and the other medical communities like family medicine, internal medicine, that there's still a, a a need for more of an education and awareness of this 
of this condition. And um, and so, Cindy, you are not alone in this. Uh, you know, it's very common. I see people in the office, and yes, they fit the classic presentation. They go over their history. We do an ultrasound, and we find very characteristic, you know, um, char- very characteristic appearance of the ovaries, and they're diagnosed with that. So it is not uncommon. And here's a question from Angie. She wants to know if fatigue is a common symptom. She says it's so hard. Fatigue is so hard. When you mention fatigue and infertility to a doctor, they instantly want to diagnose you with depression. You didn't mention fatigue is one of the common symptoms. Is that a a symptom? Is common or uncommon? Fatigue in and of itself is not a a symptom of PCOS, and uh, you know it is it is difficult. She is right that PCOS and and the condition itself can present in many different ways. And uh, but fatigue is not a common entity of it. And I think that it behooves your physician or whoever the provider you're dealing with to investigate that more to make sure, okay, what, how is the patient presenting? What else is going on? It can be from changes in physiology of the body. It can be from external, uh, external environmental influences. But definitely fatigue in and of itself is not a common you know, entity of this disease. Okay, so so for Angie, she may need to be looking for a. She may be assuming that her fatigue is associated with PCOS because that is a, a condition she has. But she may need to be looking for other causes. It sounds like. Correct, correct, and and I think and 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 I think it depends upon, you know, the, uh, her the rest of her medical history. You know, um, the you know her her physician. We can also evaluate other things, other endocrine issues that are more commonly associated with fatigue, and I think that that that's where you start and and you consider everything as a whole. Is PCOS more? If you have PCOS, are you more likely to have other endocrine type issues as well? And you know, a dysfunctioning endocrine system. PCOS has a strong association with insulin resistance. And it's actually recommended that um, women who are diagnosed with PCOS, they undergo um, glucose testing to see if they're either pre-diabetic or diabetic. So that's one of the most common things that is associated with PCOS. Uh, and that's an endocrine. Uh, uh, Correct. That's an endocrine disease. Correct. Um, yes. Okay. Gotcha. Any other endocrine diseases that that women with PCOS need to think that they are at increased risk for? No, diabetes is and 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 changes in uh in the way the body handles glucose and sugar is the primary one. Okay. All right, we have this from Shelley. She says I hate the weight issues the most because people tell me I'm a liar when I say I follow a diet and still can't lose weight. I'd like to lose weight and be healthier, but the scale won't budge. And when it does, it's a pound a month and to be perfectly honest, that's not worth the epic struggle. I work three times as hard to lose weight to have a quarter of the results. Um, I, I hear this a lot from people with PCOS who have the phenotype that that is uh, the obese or overweight type, that it is not just that they gain weight, but that losing weight is just an epic struggle. Uh, and no matter what they do, they don't seem to, to lose weight. Is this uh, Is this something that is common with the disease of PCOS? And unfortunately, we 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 do find that in our PCOS patients that they have a more more difficult time uh, losing weight and keeping off weight, and it is it is a, a constant struggle, and it's something that we try to address with them um, through various avenues. And I'd be happy to talk with those um, if you would like. Yeah, because one of the questions I have is, is there any type of diet or eating style that is more effective with PCOS for losing weight than others? And that's, it's it's a very good question. I think that there will be proponents of different diets, you know, and in our patients, you know, especially patients with PCOS, may actually, you know, find groups that are promoting one diet over another diet. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of evidence behind specific diets. Um, What it comes down to is 
and this is with many things, it's just eating healthy. It's having a balanced, you know, fat, protein, carbohydrate intake. If you eat carbohydrates, you should take you should take complex carbohydrates because you know, whole grains, fruits, vegetables, those kinds of things, your body will handle that better and um and that is the avenue that we promote. It's just an overall healthy diet. Specific carb restrictions or Atkins diets, protein-style diets, they haven't overall shown to be any better than just an overall you know, healthy diet on a daily basis. And I think that it's important with the patients is that the goal is not to lose large amounts of weight quickly because the likelihood of keeping the weight off is decreased if a patient does that. So, you know, a pound a week, while it may not seem like a lot, if it becomes a lifestyle change and the patient is eating healthier, not only PCOS but other things such as diabetes, cardiovascular disease, can you can decrease the chances of the patient, you know, of of getting this later on. And so I think that it's slow moderation it's a lifestyle change it's not just i don't like the word diet i alert, i like i like just eating healthy i don't want to put a negative connotation on it and then it's the amount of of physical activity so again i don't like to say the word exercise but if a person is more active on a daily basis you're going to be more likely to burn more calories and then if you're watching what you're eating and you're eating healthy you're eating the right things, and that's going to put you on the path to losing some weight. And and that and that is really the approach that I choose. Um, I also want to say that when you talk about losing weight, um, really in PCOS, when we're talking about the world of infertility and and treatments for patients with PCOS, as little as a two to five percent weight loss can uh, kind of recharge the system and redirect the hormone levels and cause women to start ovulating. So that can even be beneficial. So it's not huge amounts of weight necessarily, it's, but it's a, it's a lifestyle change and it's a slow, steady progression for a long-term goal. It, is, is bariatric surgery, weight loss surgery, effective at lowering the weight of PCOS sufferers, for one, and then, and, and does it improve their symptoms and overall health and their fertility uh, if they lose their weight through surgery? So, so the answer is yes, it can be helpful. Um, as mentioned previously, the two to five percent weight loss is sometimes enough to, you know, um, to help out um, the the infertility aspects and decrease the chances of a woman ovulating. Uh, you know, the bariatric surgery is reserved for people that have, an, you know, a more elevated weight and they have a larger weight loss to achieve. So it can definitely change the the metabolic profile of a patient. It can help out with their diabetes. It can help out with their PCOS, help out with the way their body handles sugar. And so there's definitely a role but it's on an individualized basis, and it would be up to, you know, the um, after careful evaluation and then being a candidate for bariatric surgery, patients have to go through a series of tests and make sure that they're candidates for that. But it can be very helpful. And the question there is, and there has been, actually some of the research results are, are inconclusive, as to whether or not surgery is successful in keeping weight off in the long term. What have you read recently? I, I haven't really been keeping up with that on the, the more current, but at one point there was concern that although there was weight loss, people tended to gain it back after bariatric surgery. Has that been, has that been held, has that finding held up through research? Well, you know, my, my, my knowledge of this is, is, is not, is not very vast, um, but I do know that there's different types of bariatric surgeries and with those surgeries, there's risks of people slowly eating more and being able to eat more and having a harder time, you know, keeping off the weight. Um, but, again, it becomes an issue of the mind, of the body, and really working towards a common goal and remembering why the patient had the surgery in the first place and then 
having that long-term goal of keeping off the weight. So it becomes, again, it always goes back to the lifestyle changes and the, and the motivation and the mental fortitude of, of, of the patient. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about living with polycystic ovary syndrome. Creating a Family has the largest infertility and adoption communities on the social networks, and we would love to have you join us. Actually, Clout is now ranking us as number two online, that number two online influencer worldwide in the areas of adoption as well as infertility. There are three ways to connect with us on Facebook. You can, of course, connect with us on our page, which is facebook.com slash creatingafamily. You can connect with our group, which is a very large, very active, and very supportive online support group, and that is facebook.com slash groups slash creatingafamily. Or you can, for finding either of those, you can just type the words creating a family in the Facebook search box, and both the page and the group will pop up, and you can like the page and join the group. Or you can connect with me personally, dawn.davenport1. We also hang out a lot on both Twitter and Pinterest, and uh, on both of those you can find us at Creating a Family. We have a question from Leslie. She wants to know if there's any evidence that avoiding gluten will improve the symptoms of PCOS. <clears throat> that is, that's a very interesting question. Uh, the 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 gluten in and of itself, <clears throat> um, from my understanding, uh, does not have a strong correlation um, with uh, improving PCOS. Um, I think that. There's definitely ongoing research on this, but as far as I know, there's not a strong correlation with that at this point. Okay. Now I want to move. We've you've given some. You talked briefly about diagnosis, and uh, the one question I do want to ask is: clearly, when you go to an endocrinologist, a reproductive endocrinologist, or other endocrinologist, uh, you can receive a, a diagnosis there. If you are having some of the symptoms you mentioned, however, is it possible? Do you need to go to an endocrinologist, or can you be diagnosed and, more importantly, treated? And we're going to go into treatment options here in just a minute. Uh, can you be treated effectively by your regular gynecologist, or should you seek out an endocrinologist of some sort? And in this case, it might make sense to go to a reproductive endocrinologist. Well, I think it depends upon uh, the um, presenting symptoms of of the individual. So, if obviously, if if the patient is is um, seeing their general physician and they have infertility, you know, concerns, then there are, you know, some some uh, obstetrician gynecologists that will feel comfortable with diagnosing and then preliminarily treating uh PCOS patients. Um and and, the, and there's the other spectrum of it where patients uh, <clears throat> where patients are referred to our office because of the suspicion for PCOS, and their their medical providers just deem that we're better suited for that. Um, it's it certainly is not a not a necessity as far as diagnosing PCOS because the criteria are, are fairly straightforward. Um, however, when it comes to addressing issues related to PCOS, I think that's where individual providers, it depends upon what the patient is seeking and what the patient needs. If a patient is not actively trying to get pregnant, does it still make sense to go to a reproductive endocrinologist for the treatment of PCOS? Or should that be, should that be, should that be wait until they're actively trying to get pregnant? Um, it's I guess it's on an individualized basis. We do we do have patients that are not seeking fertility, but they may have very irregular periods. They may have issues with irregular bleeding, you know, outside of their normal menstrual cycles, and um, and they they come into our office and we can we can very well evaluate them and we're very capable of doing that. Um, I think it's again it's on an individualized basis, but there's nothing wrong with with um, seeing reproductive endocrinologist initially and then for for an evaluation and then depending on what the patient needs after that whether they need to, they can go back to their OBGYN or whether they would need to continue in our office for fertility in the future. 
Yeah, and one of the things that, that unfortunately patients have to be cognizant of is whether or not their insurance will cover it once they're at a infertility clinic. The insurance could be making assumptions that uh, they are uh, that that they don't cover infertility and so our infertility treatments. So that's something that patients will have to think through, uh, perhaps with the help of. Almost all infertility clinics, reproductive endocrinologist offices will have somebody on staff who can help you figure out whether your insurance, and and it may just be an issue of making certain that it's coded correctly, that it's treatment Correct. for the yeah. PCOS, yes. not yes. for fertility. Mm-hmm. Yes. May, do you mind if I comment a little bit no, on I'd that? No, I'd love for you to. Okay. Yes. Uh, we and we we I I commonly get this question. We get it in our office, you know, quite often. What what ends up happening is a lot of the patients that do come to us, you know, so we so we talked about the irregular periods, we talked about the lack of periods in some patients, um, you know, we talked about the irregular bleeding a little bit. I I, I alluded to that. Uh, they talked about some of the metabolic things, the obesity and associations with diabetes. Oftentimes, when when you know, patients come to our office, they will have these these complaints. And it won't, in the, a large segment of the time, it's not just infertility. So in those cases, you know, they are seen for a medical indication that their insurance is uh, oftentimes for the initial workup or the initial visits and the and the tests that go with PCOS, those will oftentimes be covered. Uh, when the patient then, and if they need any further infertility treatments or any infertility treatments, then at that point it usually goes into the infertility diagnosis category, and then it varies a lot of depending on what state you're in, what insurance you have. And uh, But you are correct. We do have patient care representatives, and this is very common throughout the reproductive endocrinology um, offices that help the patients navigate that. So you're not going to feel like you're alone, and you're going to know going in, you know, uh, what benefits you have and then the best way to proceed. So there's people here to help for that. Exactly. That's And, and quite frankly, mm-hmm. oftentimes you need, you know, even very smart people need help because insurance is a, a maze at times and it helps if you've walked that maze or, or live in that maze, which usually there's somebody at the clinic who does. <laughs> Correct. Now, now, now with that being said, it, it is still a maze. It remains a maze and even the people <laughs> that do it full-time in our field, it it is still it's con- it's constantly changing, and we we really try to help you know guide the patients through the process. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> all right, now let's move over to talking about treatment for PCOS. And there's we got questions that kind of surprised me a lot about asking about specific drug names, but I'm going to come to that in a minute. Um, women are often uh, told to take birth control pills to control the symptoms. Um, so the first question is, does it matter what type of birth control pill that they that they, they should take? Or is, a pill, is the pill the pill the pill the pill? Yes, and I we, we often get this question too. So so the answer is in in the majority of cases the patient benefits best from a a combined estrogen and and progestin pill, and so not to mention any specific kinds, but this is one of the the combined oral contraceptive pill is is the one of the most common prescribed medications, and uh, and this can be for regulating cycles. This can be for painful periods, and the and so the answer is. In short, is that a combined estrogen and progestin pill, having both components, will do the best job with addressing the some of the PCOS-related uh, symptoms, specifically talking about irregular periods and regulating um, regulating kind of the menstrual cycles. And what about the hair growth? Uh, um, that that aspect and the weight gain. Uh, yes, are the yes. are those symptoms aided by the combined uh, oral contraception pill? Uh, yes, the, the the combined oral contraceptive pill makes or increases the uh, the what's something called the sex hormone binding globulin, and uh, and that will actually take up any of the 
proportions of the male hormone testosterone that floats around in the patient's blood. And by taking oral contraceptives, it increases the sex hormone binding globulin, so there's less free testosterone. Free testosterone in the body is what is actually responsible for the increased hair growth and some of the androgenic, the acne symptoms and those kind of things. So patients can derive a benefit from that by just taking the oral contraceptives. Okay, well, that's begs Stephanie's question, and she says, how can I manage my symptoms and still get pregnant? I was told that the pill is the best way to control PCOS, but I'm trying to get pregnant, uh, which uh, a lot of the, that a lot of the women in uh, our community would fit that bill, where they are uh, that infertility is a, one of the symptoms they want to control, and obviously the birth control pill is not very effective at uh, improving that symptom. In fact, one might argue that it was the direct opposite of that. You so, are you you are correct with that. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. All right, so. For, so yeah. yeah, so what what do you do if you have PCOS and you want to get pregnant? So if you so the main cause and the main reason why people have a difficult time conceiving and getting pregnant with PCOS is that they have menstrual cycles or periods of time where they don't normally ovulate or release an egg from the ovary. So egg and sperm have to meet in order for you to get pregnant. So then when we're talking, we're talking kind of of two different things, basically. When if you want to attempt to treat the symptoms of PCOS, we're talking about the acne, we're talking about the hair growth, but yet a patient wants to conceive, oftentimes a decision has to be made about which one is 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 the preferred target. So they are mutually exclusive because a lot of medications and the medications that are needed to get rid of the hair growth, um, they are directly damaging to a growing pregnancy. So we're recommended to be on birth control pills. If a patient is taking birth control pills, obviously they're not going to get pregnant. So the it's an individualized basis where the patient comes to, to us and if if the issue is hair growth, you know, then we can talk about, okay, you know, we, we can't medically treat you um, for that necessarily, but we can consider, um, you know, just doing kind of topical things with like the shaving, plucking, waxing, just encouraging that and to, to deal with that particular symptom. Um, for as far as getting patients to release an egg or ovulate, there are medications that we can give that kind of that counteract any potential um, problems of the ovary. And in most of the PCOS patients, we can get the ovaries to grow eggs, and we can, through interventions, we can follow the growth of those eggs. We can trigger the release of an egg, and then we can attempt to get people pregnant. It's on an individualized basis, but that's kind of the first treatment starting point. Okay, and just in general, how how effective is uh, how well? Uh, what are the odds that a woman with PCOS will be able to get pregnant with treatment? Well, it's it's actually pretty good with PCOS. So the like the the major the major issue is that for many of the PCOS patients, they just don't release the egg. So um, by tricking the body into sending more of a signal to the ovaries to develop an egg at the beginning of a normal menstrual cycle, uh, that increases the chances tremendously. And uh, you can you can actually be very successful with PCOS patients um, with actually getting them pregnant and um, allowing them to start their families. Are the oral fertility meds such as letrozole, Clomid, and I imagine there are others, are they effective? I mean, those are ovulatory-stimulating drugs, as I understand it. So are they effective for uh, people with PCOS to stimulate their ovaries uh, to ovulate? The answer is it, it all depends upon the the fertility, the results of the fertility workup for the individual. So when a patient comes to our office, they will undergo testing of the ovaries to see how well the ovaries are functioning for the patient's age. And I like to say, are your ovaries act behaving? We try, we're trying to figure out if, if, if your ovaries are behaving your age, they're acting older than you or younger than you. And so we do a series of tests 
sometimes um, at the beginning of a menstrual cycle, sometimes at you know at any point in the menstrual cycle, to kind of gauge and and evaluate how well the ovaries are working. If the ovaries are functioning at a fairly good level, and uh, then the oral agents such as the clomiphene citrate, the letrozole, these are two common medications, those are definite considerations in recruiting an egg and increasing the chances of a patient getting pregnant. All right. So the the key, as you as you as you've mentioned, is for uh, what we want is uh, the other symptoms. Uh, women can treat other ways, and if they're safe, or just just put up with for the duration of their trying to conceive time. So the main focus for for people who are trying to conceive and and are not being able to conceive because they're not ov- ovulating because of PCOS. So the main goal then is to get them to ovulate. What are some Correct. of the drug treatments of choice? Uh, we've just talked about two, uh, clomiphene citrate and uh, uh, otherwise known as Clomid or Letrozole. Uh, what is the uh, brand name for Letrozole? I just blanked on it. It is called Femara. 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 Yeah, Femara. Yeah. Okay. All right. Yeah. So it, it, those those could be that they are, those it is possible that they will jumpstart your ovulation. Um, what are some other drugs that are used uh, to treat to, to try to get people to ovulate with mm-hmm. PCOS? Well, I want to just back up a little bit before I go into more of the medications, and I just sure. wanted to reiterate that the first line treatment in women that are not releasing an egg or they're anovulatory that have PCOS, it still remains weight loss. Okay, and so we've already, now we're talking past that point, but that just deserves consideration because that can be enough to, to you know, to not need any medications. And it can even help out in patients who are taking medications. So the body will respond better. Um, and and, and so, just to reiterate, it doesn't have to be a even getting you within the normal weight, even getting you out of obesity. A 2 to 5% is from what you were saying might be enough to uh, uh, let your body start ovulating again. Correct, and and that's and that's always a very important point because I think a lot of patients want to, you know, who are overweight may want to see themselves lose thirty or forty pounds. Well, you know that that is a great goal, but you know I like to prefer more baby steps, you know, and yeah. helping the patients kind of get you know start to develop that a lifestyle, some changes in their diet, in their activity level, that leads to slow changes and it becomes a part of who they are. That's that's the goal and that's the long standing thing that is gonna help them the rest of their life, you know, and so and so that's so that is definitely the approach. Not a huge amounts of weight, you start with small and if you do well then you can continue on that trend. Okay. So uh, let's assume that they either have lost weight or are in the process of trying to lose some weight. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, and one of the, the frustrating things, of course, is that uh, time is not on anybody's side when we talk about fertility. Uh, and so mm-hmm. uh, they, they may choose not to wait until the weight loss is there, or they've Correct. lost some weight and it's still not, it has not been enough, or they're one of the people who not everyone who has PCOS is overweight. So, Correct. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So, so what are the so so what's the next line of of attack if uh, if weight loss has either just begun and is not far enough along, mm-hmm. or has not, uh, or they have lost the weight and are still not ovulating? Yeah. So one of one of the other medications that you know I'm sure that some of the patients have questions on, or you guys have talked about on the radio show before, is a potentially a medication called metformin. Uh-huh. And um, and so in what this is is this is a medication that is often um, prescribed to to patients with PCOS, and the idea is that if a patient who has PCOS also has some insulin resistance, uh, metformin is an insulin sensitizer, so the body handles sugar loads better, and that is thought to relate directly carry back to the function of the ovary and releasing an egg. So there are schools of thought, and there's indication in patients um, that definitely have insulin resistance. They've been tested for that. Um, They may be pre-diabetic. They can benefit by um, 
administration of metformin, um, which is an oral pill. And that is sometimes helpful with um, getting patients to ovulate. And it's also used with both the oral medications, the Clomid and the Letrozole, and as well as in the next step of medications, which um, which we consider um, for fertility treatments are injectable medications to get the ovaries to grow eggs. Um, I just did, did we do want to mention that that. There are a couple of schools of thought on metformin, and the research vacillates between, you know, who should be on metformin. But it 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 appears that the patients that benefit the most from it are the patients that have documented through prior testing some insulin resistance, and they may be have a pre-diabetic disposition. Um, there's another school of thought that says all patients should be on metformin if they have PCOS, and I think that, you know. The research will continue on this, and hopefully we'll have a more solidified answer. But even within the field of reproductive endocrinology, there's differing opinions on who should be on metformin. But it, in, in definitely in the patient who has insulin resistance, it can help out. Okay, some other meds we've got questions. We've received questions on, and I'll probably mm-hmm. slaughter the pronunciation. Uh, uh, let's see. I actually try. I practiced on this one. Uh, spironolactone. Brand mm-hmm. name is yes. all al aldactone. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. Uh, I so don't know they, what that. So, I've not actually heard of that before. And we had two people to ask about it. Which so. Uh, yeah. So what is spironol yeah. spironolactone? Spironolactone. Spironolactone is is a is a medication that is indicated for the treatment of the abnormal hair growth symptoms. Oh, okay. okay. So it is so it is it is addressing not the infertility aspects and the ovulation, but it's addressing the, you know, the the physical manifestations of 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 PCOS. Gotcha. And uh and and so it you know, <clears throat> It is commonly used, and it's one of the first-line treatments for people that have, you know, excessive hair growth, or it's also called hirsutism is the medical term for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so patients that have tried to pluck wax, you know, whatever, you know, whatever they, they've they had to do in the past, uh, sometimes they, you know, often the patients, they still don't get a benefit from that or they're tired of doing that. They want to try other things. And then so spironolactone is kind of the next step. It's the, you know, for addressing the hair growth. And um, and the the only the difficulty is is that is contraindicated to be pregnant on that medication because it can gotcha. it's a it can directly um, affect the female fetus and so you know patients who are asking about that they're thinking more of the lifestyle you know concerns with PCOS and if and when they're going to be ready to you know seek infertility treatments or need it in the future then the recommendation would be to stop that medication at that time. Gotcha. Yes, and similar to Accutane, which is often used to uh, treat acne. Really, um, yes, really bad acne. Yes, and and right. I also just I also just wanted to mention briefly about the spironolactone. I think it's an important point. Is that um, when your physician puts you on spironolactone, really the indication is to be on it for a minimum of six months because that's the ideal uh, time frame of when you should really start to see a benefit. So patients that might be placed on it and not be happy with it during the first one, two, or three months, really the recommendation is to stick with it and um, and then evaluate at a six-month interval from there. Some in our audience talked about some really significant side effects from the spironolactone. Um, does it have a particularly bad side effect profile, or was that the, the people who were talking, or it was actually just one person, was she particularly sensitive to it? <clears throat> And did she did she specifically mention what she was uh, yeah, what mood she was changes suffering? And suici- yeah, mood changes and suicidal thoughts. Mm, okay, okay. They definitely uh, spironolactone is, is is not a medication that we that we take lightly as as medical providers. I mean, it has the common things of you know nausea, some GI changes, maybe you know diarrhea, headaches, and 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 those kind of things. Um, in in more severe cases, it can um, change some your potassium levels in the body. It can change some of your some of the um, some of the blood levels, and it can also affect the liver function um, and the kidneys. So 
it is it it is a medication that usually when your doctor so uh prescribes this what they're going to do is they're going to do some baseline blood work on you to make sure that you're a candidate for it and then they may follow you from there um it is you know in 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 and of itself it's it's not it's not a medication with minimal amounts of side effects so i think that it definitely warrants an individualized discussion with your medical provider as well as the other medications that you're on before going on spironolactone and that's and it's just from a, a lay stand, lay person's standpoint, that's a hard one because it's it's being used to treat. Which I, I'm not in any way saying that hair growth is not a significant. It's, it is a significant issue, and if you've got hair growth, especially if it's on your face and it's easily seen, it's a big deal. But it is a cosmetic thing, and so when you're thinking of taking a uh, a medication that is systemic to treat something that's cosmetic. That's a hard decision to make, uh, so definitely needs to be made with some care. It sounds like as well. Correct, correct. And in 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 some patients, you know, they may have tried the other avenues and and you know, like plucking, shaving, waxing, those kind of things. And and really, at at the end of the day, they they have it's 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 a temporary thing. They may want something you know that addresses more of the hair growth from the origin. And and but it is. It needs to be done with, in, in care with your medical provider on an individualized basis. Yes. Yeah, that makes good sense. You are listening to Creating a Family. Today we're talking about living with PCOS. I want to take a moment to remind you that this show is brought to you by the generous support of our sponsors, including our wonderful gold sponsors, who are organizations and clinics who believe in our mission of providing unbiased, medically accurate information to the patient community. A couple of our great gold sponsors include Reproductive Medicine Associates of New Jersey. They are a recognized scientific and patient care leader in the field of infertility with 10 offices and 21 physicians throughout New Jersey. They maintain an IVF delivery rate well above the national average. We also have Fairfax Cryobank. Fairfax has been a leader in sperm donation for over 25 years, and they are dedicated to supplying updated, verified, and accurate medical and personal information on their donors. Only one in 200 applicants make it through the screening process to become a donor. All right, another drug that we heard about, uh, questions, we received questions about, was um, Sprintec. How effective is Sprintec? How does it work? Uh, Anyway, somebody commented that they had a friend that took it for a year to regulate her cycles and then conceived naturally. So what is Sprintec? So that is a combined oral contraceptive with... with Estrogen and progestin, like like I talked about before. So it is um, there. It, it it is one of many oral contraceptives that is out there. They all, many of them, vary in the amount of estrogen they have, the amount of progesterone they have. Uh, but it is it is an oral contraceptive, and it's when you look at at the research, really. The different oral contraceptives, as far as their efficacy, one has not shown necessarily to be better than another one, as far as as PCOS. Um, and and so, what you're essentially doing is you're manipulating the hormonal profiles of the ovaries. So then you're kind of um, you're kind of counteracting like what happens with PCOS. And so Sprintec is a common one that that is used. There's the you know, I don't want to go into specific types of oral contraceptives too much, but um your you know, anybody that is considering oral contraceptives, there are there are certain oral contraceptives that um that ha they may have more that may have less of an effect on kind of changing the male hormones. So the so specifically the the progestin hormone some of them um, tend to be less androgenic or less likely to increase and change their testosterone levels. So some of the patients, you could talk on it with your provider on an individual basis. Again, I don't want to go into specific uh, details yeah. of the medications, but that there are kind of a couple medications that people consider doing if they have some of the hair growth issues and 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 acne and those kind of things. Right, the more male hormone. But here's what I don't mm-hmm. really get. I, I get how 
the birth control pill will make you have a menstrual cycle, but you're not ovulating. That's the goal of the of the uh, of the birth control pill is you're not ovulating. So other than controlling the fact that you know the regularity of your cycle, how is it fundamentally changing anything? Because it's not helping you ovulate. So are you uh, in this case? Uh, it, when this, this discussion surrounding this particular uh, oral mm-hmm. contraceptive was the fact was that they got pregnant, that people, yes. yeah, that yeah. they were more likely. I assume now. I didn't realize it was an oral contraceptive. I should have looked it up before the show. Uh, obviously, they had to stop it. Uh, but so you stop the oral contraception. Mm-hmm. Are you more likely then to ovulate because you have been on oral contraception for a year or whatever? That's because it, isn't that just kind of masking the lack of ovulation? Well, like as I as I mentioned previously, the the way the way that PCOS works is it has to have very precise signals from the brain to the ovaries. The ovaries have to have very sequential changes in in estrogen and in progesterone, you know, products. And what happens with the birth control pills is it will actually it, it what it sometimes does is tweaks it tweaks the ovarian function enough to where when you go off of them sometimes patients do ovulate you know for you know but it's but it's not it it's not the it it's not an indicated treatment and an indicated way to go as far to get people pregnant but their PCOS patients ha- are notorious for ovulating at irregular intervals so you could not ovulate for a whole year if if we if somebody actually monitored and followed them and then all of a sudden they could have three cycles in a row where they ovulate so it could just be you know a little change in the hormone levels when they first go off the birth control pills that the PCOS has been you know kind of regulated and then they're more likely to ovulate but people that really have PCOS they they will ultimately become anovulatory and have anovulatory cycles we just don't know exactly how much and when that that happens in each individual. Okay, and I want to spend some time talking about, we've talked about medical treatments, um, Mm -hmm. but there's always an interest in non-medical, natural treatments or supplements or alternative treatments um, for complementary treatments uh, that are effective with treating any of the symptoms of PCOS, whether it be the infertility or whether it be the acne or the weight gain or the hair lo- uh, or the uh, or the hair growth, so or the insulin uh, issues. So let's talk about: Are there any? As somebody, I think it was Cindy said, what non-myth treatments, uh, alternative treatments, would actually help with the symptoms? Because we all know that that there are a lot of uh, uh, anecdotal. You know, gosh, you know, I, you know, I. I don't know. I I ate grapefruit, you know, five grapefruit a day, and I got mm-hmm. better. Therefore, it was it the it was a grapefruit that that helped me or whatever. For all I know, grapefruit might actually have some impact. But uh, so let's talk some about uh, these alternative treatments or, or natural treatments or dietary changes or stuff like that, with the exception of anything having to do with weight loss. Yes, and this is this is a very very hot topic. Um, it is definitely not my my specialty. There there are there are quite a few there are quite a few groups and and physicians that kind of specialize with PCOS, and they may they may be more helpful with this than than myself. But my understanding is that when when we talk about PCOS, we talk about the estrogen levels, and we talked about the environmental exposures to estrogen type you know um agents you know foods whatever so when we when we talk about um uh foods that are more estrogenic in nature so sometimes if you have like beef products dairy products <clears throat> these animals are given estrogen you know and and there's there's a potential concern that the amount of estrogen, you know, uh, components in the meats and, and what we're eating in our daily diets may actually um, may actually contribute or have some role with the PCOS. So, by <clears throat> avoiding some of those things, there could potentially be a benefit. Um, there's also evidence that um, you know there might. I know that there's also some talks about. Um, soy and some of those other estrogenic kind of components, and there's there's people that say that like tofu and <clears throat> soy foods and and those kind of things may actually <clears throat> um, may help out with some of the hormonal imbalances. 
but the literature is is not there to to support these things. So, you know, there's there's not any hard fast guidelines on dietary changes. Um some some other things, um some non-traditional things are Eastern medicine therapies like acupuncture and things like that, um, they have potentially shown to be a benefit <coughs> as far. <coughs> Excuse me. Excuse sure. Me, sorry. I understand. Um, I often have uh, fought with the cough. Um, during Whenever I get a cold, <laughs> that's the first thing that happens is I get a cough. It's always tough on the air when that happens. But Yeah, um, I kind of, I, I woke up with something. But, some you know, so as far as, like, dietary changes, there's, you know, there's, you know, the, the, there's some evidence out there that that may have a role. I don't have a steadfast plan uh, and suggestions of, of, of what to do. So, yeah. All right. And, and one question I had, you were talking about the dairy products, and we actually got some questions <laughs> on that. But you were saying that that would, it was in order, that it was uh, thought it was best to avoid the dairy products because of the potential for the added estrogen. But with soy products, which also have an I estrogenic know. impact, <laughs> It was thought that some people think that it's best to eat the soy products. Did I did I misunderstand you? No, no, you 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 understood me, and I was just illustrating the difference between you know natural estrogens in our foods versus what's been added, you know, for gotcha. the environment and everything. So I think that okay. it 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 get it gets back to eating natural foods. It gets it gets back to the topic of you know what do we what are we exposed to in our environment, our water supply as potential roles in in this condition and as well as other conditions a lot of other things that's being studied so it's it's a concern all right and and, and i want to end on this one we've talked about other health <laughs> risks for women with polycystic ovary syndrome um and you know the, uh, the particularly as it relates to the propensity to develop diabetes or insulin resistance mm-hmm. but we did get a question and i want to make sure we get it in on are women who have uh, PCOS at a higher cancer risk. I would assume that the cancer risk of concern would be ovarian cancer, but uh, but I may be wrong on that. Is there an associated increased cancer risk for uh, people who have PCOS? And I'm I'm glad you brought this up because the answer is um, there. What the risk that mainly that we're talking about is ovarian cancer. I mean, sorry, sorry, I, I misspoke. Is uterine cancer. So endometrial cancer, okay? And the whole reason why is because when women are not having regular periods or they have gone one, two, three plus months without a period, what's happening is the uterus is being exposed to estrogen and estrogen builds up the lining of the uterus. The more it builds up, the more it builds up and you don't have that, that period it doesn't get rid of all those cells that are changing and being stimulated by the estrogen. It increases the risk of cellular changes that can ultimately lead to uterine cancer. So that is, I did not mention that earlier, but women that don't have regular periods, <clears throat> seeking a, a uh, care at your provider and evaluating to see if you're at risk for that is definitely recommended because it leads to endometrial hyperplasia and it ultimately leads to cancer and it's something that that can be prevented by eliciting and helping the patient have periods which we can do medically very easily. And and is that tested for with the pap smear? No, no, it 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 is not. The pap smear is for cervical changes. The okay. way that this is done is it it's done it's um by the patient's history, how you know, how long have they gone without um menstrual periods? Whether they're obese or not, their body's going to make more estrogen then, and that's going to predispose them to having changes, as well as through transvaginal ultrasound, where you can look and measure the thickness of right. the uterine lining. And if it's thick and the patient hasn't had a period, then sometimes it's indication to do a, a, a biopsy of the inside of the uterus to make sure that there's none of those early changes. Okay, excellent. Well, thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Alan Martinez, uh, to talk about living with PCOS. Let me remind our audience that we primarily keep in touch with you folks via our uh, weekly newsletter. We have two newsletters uh, every week, one uh, dealing with infertility, one dealing with adoption. So you get to choose, or you can choose both. Um, so please sign up on the top right-hand side of any page of our website. Uh, if you want to participate in a discussion of the topics of this show, you can check out our blog tomorrow at creatingafamily.org blog, uh, dot org slash blog. 
let's keep the ideas coming and the discussion going. I think that would be fun. Uh, for those of you who would like more information on Dr. Alan Martinez or on the Reproductive Science Center of New Jersey, you can go to their website, which is fertilitynj.com, as in Fertility New Jersey. So fertilitynj.com, and you can get information directly on Dr. Alan Martinez. Thank you guys for all for joining us today, and I will be back next week, and I look forward to talking with you then. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. The Starlight Lounge presents An Evening with the Progressive Box. Moon. Yeah. That's Hugo tickling the ivories. He just saved by bundling home and auto with Progressive. Gonna finally buy a ring for that gal of yours, Hugo? Send her my condolences. Hi-oh! This next one's for you, too. There's a burglar in my heart. Thank you. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations.